If you will now, please open in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll be reading 1 Peter 3 verses 18 through 22. And I ask if you will and are able to please stand with me that together we might express our reverence for the written word of God. This evening on the meaning of baptism, 1 Peter 3, beginning at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, we have a great subject before us this evening and a wonderful, albeit puzzling, text. And so we pray that your spirit that has inspired these words would now help us to understand them, to believe them, and to rightly apply them to our lives. For the glory of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, into whose name we have been baptized, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. This evening, we get to engage the subject of baptism, and I have to admit uh, that for whatever reason, I'm actually sort of excited about this subject. Uh, I think it's a largely misunderstood doctrine, and perhaps even a neglected one. And, and I'll lead by asking the question, what does baptism say? And follow that with, what does baptism do? Does it, does it really even matter? Does baptism important. <clears throat> well, uh, let me make an observation that I find, at least in my view, an irony in the church's current, albeit time-tested, interest in the visual. And when I mean the visual, what I mean by that uh, is things like TV screens and oddly entertaining props. Even alongside of that, uh, pictures of Jesus. The church has historically, and at the present, had an interest in the visual, and yet none of these things, TV screens, props, and even pictures of Jesus, are things that the Bible actually prescribes. And at the same time, uh, while we have an interest in things that the Bible does not prescribe, it also catches my attention that we have a small interest in the things that the Bible does that are visual i.e. the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, the visual things that Jesus actually prescribed and gave to his church. So we're going to talk about baptism from three angles. You have an outline there uh, in your handout. And the first point is going to be the background of baptism. Uh, There are really two points of background that we want to look at. The first that Peter leads with is the gospel. And the second, kind of an intriguing and puzzling one, Uh, is an illustration from Noah. 
But beginning with the gospel, Peter starts off by telling us in verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. It's a silly question to ask, but a very important question to ask. How many times did Jesus die? He died once. Uh, This language that Peter uses is much like that of the book of Hebrews, that Jesus died one time. He died once for all. And perhaps you're tempted to say, well, duh, Uh, everyone knows that. He died once for all. But in the Roman Catholic Church, their theology suggests that every time that the Lord's Supper, what they would call the Mass, is done, that there's some sense which Jesus continues to suffer. That's why they call it Mass from the Latin word uh, Misa, Mission, suggesting that the mission, technically speaking, is not accomplished. It's still being carried on. And not only must Jesus continue to add to what is necessary for our salvation through his suffering, it leaves a gap that we somehow fill in by the things that we do in our suffering, which led to the doctrine of purgatory. It's, it's really bad. It's really out there, and it's a long ways from the Bible. It's a long ways from what Peter here is saying in 1 Peter 3, that Jesus Christ suffered once, once for all. And he died uh, not simply for sin, but notice the exact language in the text. There's the letter S, that he died for sins. And again, perhaps you're tempted to say, Pastor, why are you so hung up on little things like letters? Now, what's the difference between saying Jesus died for sin and Jesus died for sins? Is it a distinction with a meaningful difference? And the answer is yes. If we were simply to say that Jesus died for sin, there's nothing personal about that. It's sort of abstract. It's sort of categorical. It's out there. He died for sin. But to say that he died for sin is not the same thing that, as saying he died for people. That he died for sinners. That he died for sins that have actually been committed by people who are sinners and have committed not simply sin categorically or abstractly, but particular sins. This becomes a related point when Peter gets to the subject of conscience. That what Christ has died to set us free from is not the category of sin in general, but the particular sins that we have particularly committed. So one little letter means an awful lot in our theology of what Christ has actually done for us. And that's the whole point. What Christ did at the cross, he didn't do for a category of sin, but he did for people who have committed sins. His work in that sense is very personal. It's very particular. It wasn't for sin. It was for you. It wasn't for sin. It was for me. Do you see the difference? It's a very meaningful difference. The particular work of our Savior attached to the once and for all work of our Savior. So what is the effect? According to Peter, what effect then has the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins accomplished? But that it has caused us to be brought near. Notice that beautiful phrase there, uh, that he might bring us to God. What beautiful language. A person being brought, carried, 
brought near to God. It's very tender and uh, affectionate language. It's against the backdrop of the polar opposite, which is being driven away from God. And the Bible illustrates this in major and important ways when Adam and Eve committed particular sins against God. The wages of sin was death. And they were expelled from the garden. They were not drawn near. They were pushed out. And that sense of estrangement is seen even more so like what we're looking at in Ezra. Or even in the days of Israel. And Israel had a temple. On the one hand, God was in their midst. But they could not truly come near. Only the high priest could draw near. Everyone else stayed far off at a distance. And then when Israel, as a nation, fell in such great sin that God brought judgment against them, he drove them away, again, driving them out, away from his temple, away from his presence, into exile, into Babylon, a virtual return to Egypt. The point is, the effect of sin is to separate us from God, to drive us out and away from the presence of God, and the work of Christ, the once-for-all sacrifice, reverses the curse. Rather than being driven driven away, we are now drawn near. He has brought us to God, almost like a friend that you bring home, who otherwise would not be allowed to walk in your house and begin eating all your food. But if one of your kids brings that friend home, how do you treat them? Almost like family. You feed them, you love them, you welcome them, you let them come back. That's what Jesus has done. The brother, as he's called in Hebrews, the son, as he's called all over the scripture, has brought people home to his father. And what does the father say? But if they are with you, they are with me. Bring them near. It's really beautiful and affectionate language. And what brings it all about? It's not simply through the death of Jesus, according to Peter, but also according to his resurrection. He was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. It's really wonderful. Not only the death of Christ was necessary to save us, uh, the resurrection of Christ uh, perhaps was even more so necessary. Why? Because if all Jesus did was die for us, would you have any hope? Jesus died for me and is still dead. There's not much gospel in that. Jesus died for me and is raised again. There's triumph and victory in that. The good news of the gospel uh, does not terminate upon the idea that Jesus died. The good news of the gospel celebrates the fact that Jesus is risen. And so Peter makes that point very clearly. Yes, he was put to death in the flesh, but he was also made alive in the spirit. And then comes 19, verse 19 the verse that at least a handful of you found is the main reason you came back tonight. Because this is such a strange verse. It's a really strange verse. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. We'll read verse 20. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. What is going on in verse 19, uh, this very interesting language that Jesus went, and how does it say he proclaimed to the spirits in prison? Who are these people? Where are these people? And what is Jesus doing there preaching to these spirits in prison? Well, I want to give you my very deep, precise, theologically worked over and over and over answer. Are you ready? I'm just not sure. 
but I'll take a stab at it. There are four views. If you happen to have an ESV study Bible, Reformation study Bible, I mean, and and you look down in the notes, you'll notice that it gives uh, four historically time-tested approaches to verse 19 and what Peter means by this language. If you are familiar with the Apostles' Creed, with which nearly every one of you are in this church, uh, that phrase that he descended into hell is connected to this verse in Ephesians chapter 4. And it's raised lots of questions for lots of people that wonder, what does it mean when we say that Jesus went to hell? Okay, uh, It's very interesting that the language here in verse 19, spirits in prison uh, and Something that Jesus was doing in the spirit immediately after his death. So I, I admit that's puzzling language. Perhaps you're feeling a sense of that too. But if you feel that way and you're just not sure, uh, don't get too nervous or even excited about it. You're actually in pretty good company. About this verse, Martin Luther said, A wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. So if you know for sure what this verse means, you're up on Martin Luther and the pastor of the church. Again, it connects to Ephesians 4, uh, the language there that he descended to the lower parts of the earth. And I will uh, work through what it likely does mean and is a very popular view. And that is it's a reference to the cross that somehow uh, Jesus, when he descended uh, into hell, as the language of the Apostles' Creed goes, what that means is he endured the full wrath of God upon the cross, a view that makes uh, wonderful sense. Here's what it doesn't mean. What it doesn't mean is that there's any way in which after Jesus died, he went to hell to suffer more at the hands of the devil. We don't believe that. You shouldn't believe that. There's nowhere that the Bible teaches that. And and the church has historically condemned that view. So Jesus doesn't take an extra lap after the cross of suffering and descend into hell to be tortured or tormented by Satan there in hell. So that's not at all what it says. It might mean, and this is my view, that the first thing that Jesus did after he was made alive in the spirit, having died, was to pass through hell, the language here in 1 Peter 3.19, not as a victim, but as the one who had just conquered sin, death, and hell. And that that language of proclaimed is evidencing that the one who died is the Son of God, the now triumphant, resurrected from the dead, Son of God, so that even his enemies know, and in a certain sense, become the first to know that Jesus has triumphed over death, over hell, and over them. This view is held by many. It's also in the Reformation Study Bible. You may not be persuaded, and that's okay. We both have permission to be wrong. Philippians 2, however, carries a similar line when it says that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The question is when and in what fashion and in any sense has it already begun? Do even the demons and the angels who fell away and went to hell, do they already know that Jesus is a triumphant resurrected Son of God? The answer, of course, is yes. But when were they told and how did they know? Perhaps that is what Peter is saying here in verse 19. 
But that's about as far as I'll go down the trail. It is what it is. If you want to talk about it more, feel free to call Pastor Troxel when he gets back. (laughs) The second thing that Peter leads us on to is equally intriguing, but perhaps clearer, at least in my view, and that is the gospel as it's illustrated through a phrase I want to use now, through the baptism of Noah. The gospel illustrated through the baptism of Noah. We see this in verses 20 through 22 as Peter gives not only uh, this extended illustration regarding Noah. Notice very carefully in verse 21, this is why we chose the text for tonight. He refers to this event in the days of Noah in connection to baptism. In connection to baptism. So I'm going to talk a little bit about this. Uh, The baptism of Noah. If you don't mind me putting it in a sort of punny fashion, it is quite arguable that our theology of baptism is a little too shallow. All right, that's it, I stop. (laughs) And that often when we think about baptism, our theology is so focused on the death and resurrection of Jesus that we miss or water down the most important part, which is the judgment aspect of baptism, which is actually what Peter is here talking about. Baptism is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, but baptism is a sign, of, a sign and seal of the covenant of grace that displays redemption through judgment. So that everywhere in the Bible you see baptisms taking place, it is always redemption through judgment. In fact, there are many baptisms in the Bible, and they are actually usually bad for the person who's baptized. Many people in the Bible are baptized that do not enjoy it, are not happy to have been baptized. You say, well, what on earth does that mean? Well, again, beginning with Peter's own illustration here from Noah, in Genesis chapter 7, think about it. When the flood came and the waters from heaven came down and God uh, was poised at that moment because of all of the sins that had been committed in the world, when he began to devour or engulf the world in a gulp of divine judgment, he did it with water. But who got wet? Noah or the world? It is the world that got wet. And where was Noah relative to the water of judgment? Noah was safe, if you will, dry on an ark above the water, saved, spared, preserved from the water. Noah and those who were in him saved and the world drowned. And Peter refers to that event as a baptism. But it's not the only one in the Bible. There are several instances like this. When Israel goes through the Red Sea in Exodus 14, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.2 will call that event a baptism. But very carefully, who gets wet? Is it Israel or the Egyptians? God, through Moses, parts the Red Sea. And the water stands up on either side like swordsmen drawn with their sword in hand. And it says that not only did Israel pass through as on dry ground, mud, we are told, did not even stick to the soles of their feet. Who cares about mud on the bottom of flip-flops? Why is that even in the text? What's the point? The point is, the water was symbolic of judgment. And when Israel passed through, the water of God's judgment did not even stick to the soles of their shoes. They passed through 
on dry ground, safe from the water of judgment. But when the Egyptians passed through, someone got wet. And they were not celebrating on the other side. In fact, it says they were never seen again. And Paul calls that a baptism. But there's one more, and I think this is one of the most overlooked, yet arguably quite important verses related to this subject. And that is when Jesus says himself in Luke 12.50, if you care uh, to turn there, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am until it is fulfilled. What on earth is Jesus talking about? Here's a trick question. How many times was Jesus baptized? Now, don't answer out loud. But think about it. How many times was our Savior baptized? The answer is twice. He was baptized once by John in Matthew chapter 3 in the Jordan River. And that is the one that we all know. But in Luke 12, towards the end of his ministry, Jesus speaks of another baptism. One that is yet to come. One that he is distressed over until it is fulfilled. And he is certainly referring to his death through the cross. And here's the point. It's the same point from Genesis 7. It's the same point from Exodus 14. It's the point that Jesus is making is that salvation comes through judgment and baptism displays visually, illustrates dramatically the reality of salvation through judgment. So Jesus, beloved, for you was actually baptized twice, once at the Jordan and once into death. Your redemption came through his judgment. And this leads to the blessing of baptism. This is why I'm excited about the sermon. There is something beautiful here. Again, Martin Luther was once asked a question. You're going to think he gave the wrong answer. When I tell you the question and the answer, you're going to think uh, Luther whiffed that one. Here's the question. Martin, how do you know that you've been saved? Answer, Because I've been baptized. What are you thinking? Well, there he goes. He's just not quite out of the Roman Catholic Church enough. He whiffed it. He's backsliding. Maybe a little too much time at the end. What is he saying? And is he actually altogether wrong? Well, it depends on how you understand, or perhaps better put, how he understood his language. He wasn't saying that baptism in and of itself saved him. He wasn't saying that there's something magical about the water that washed away his sins. Or what the Roman Catholic Church referred to as ex opere operata. The thing working works. All you need to do is baptize somebody and it will wash away their original sins so that they can begin working for their salvation. That's their theology on the subject. But Luther's point was that God had made a promise and he signed it and he sealed it. And when God promises and signs and seals it, it is a promise that can be rested in. Baptism has far more to do with the promise of God than anything you or I do. That's the point. And that's what Luther was trying to save. It's kind of like an analogy to a wedding ring. How do you know, you who are uh, married or even engaged, how do you know that you are married or engaged. Well, you you might hold up your hand and say, well, you know, the ring of power has been placed upon me. (laughs) But does wearing a ring make you married? Anybody can put on a ring. Does wearing a ring make you engaged? Anybody 
can put on a ring. What's the difference then? A person. Not only put on this ring, a person made you a promise. And this is the sign and the seal of that promise. That's what Luther was saying. It's not that baptism saved any more than wearing a ring makes you married. But that God had made a promise And he gave a sign and a seal to visualize, to illustrate that promise. And when Luther looks to his baptism, he sees, if you will, a visual display of the promise of God. A constant reminder that not only have I been purchased, I've been drawn near. I am blood bought, signed, sealed, delivered. I'm yours. That's exactly uh, what Peter is working out here. What does it mean to be united to Christ? What does it mean to be baptized into Christ? What does it mean even to be uh, called to imitate him? Baptism tells us something really wonderful. Covenant kids, how many of you remember your baptism? I'm going to guess most in the room might not even remember. And there's something so beautiful about that. Uh, You have as much to do with saving yourself as you did with baptizing yourself. How do you come into the kingdom of God? Like little children. How did half of us in this room uh, get baptized? Like little children. And there's something to that. Baptism tells us that we have done nothing. And God has done everything. Baptism tells us that Jesus took our place in judgment. That we might join him in his place in heaven. Baptism says in the language of the Heidelberg Catechism. Opening question and answer, Lord's Day 1, baptism says, I belong. And I don't belong to myself. I belong to the one who loved me, who gave himself for me, and placed his seal upon me. Baptism says to you, beloved, you belong to God. That's a beautiful thing to know. Everybody wants to belong. Most of the world is ruining their life, trying to figure out where they belong. Where do they fit in? Where do they come from? Where do they go? What gives meaning to anything? Who am I? What am I? Baptism, in a certain sense, speaks to all those questions. And Peter puts it uh, rather beautifully. It not only says that we belong. Verse 21 is like a hug for the conscience. Because it speaks to exactly that very subject. This is our appeal for a good conscience. I wonder if that language caught you the way that it captures me. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Don't trip over that part. I'll come back to it in a moment. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. How does it do that? This wonderful language. Because all authority and power have been given to Jesus, the one who triumphed over sin, death, Satan, and hell, who rose triumphantly, who was paraded before his enemies as conquering king, no longer lamb, but now the lion, the one who alone has power to cleanse, the one who alone has power to heal, is also the one who has the power to bind up and console even the most wounded of conscience. That is fantastic language. It is truly beautiful. Who here in this room does not have a wounded conscience? The problem with the conscience is, generally speaking, it tells the truth. The problem with the conscience is that no matter where you go, it comes along with you. The problem with the conscience is no matter how hard you try to forget, it almost never ceases to remember. Put it a different way. If your sins could talk, 
If your sins could find voice, would they ever stop talking? Would they ever stop accusing? Would they ever stop echoing all that you have thought that you ought not to? All that you have said that you ought not to? All that you have done that you ought not to? Would their voice not drown you in sorrow, submerging you into the darkest bottom of the deepest ocean if your sins, not sin, if your sins could talk? And not only your own conscience. If God should hold those sins against you, from one to all of them, where would you spend eternity satisfying the wages for those sins? So what does baptism do, beloved? It not only assures us of our standing before God, it gives to us a good conscience. A conscience wiped clean, baptized, if you will, cleansed by the blood of Christ. Our baptism tells us something that the world can't, but the word does. Our baptism tells us that our sins have been forgiven, that we are hidden in Christ. Baptism, again, washes our conscience clean as we look to the promises of God that are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. This is why... Just a little bit above, uh, when Peter uses the language, baptism now saves you. Don't freak out about that. Okay? Uh, uh, very often in the Bible, the Confession talks about this. Calvin has a wonderful extended section about this. Often in the Bible, uh, the sign of something God does is talked about in ways uh, that uh, make the relationship between the sign and the thing it points to sound very smooth. Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Is it the cup? Or what's in the cup? You see the tight relationship? Baptism doesn't save you. But what does it display? That sign and that seal, the promise of God. That is the thing that truly saves you. But often the sign and the seal are spoken about in such intimate relationship that it's hard to distinguish one from the other. Our baptism, again, tells us that we have been forgiven, that we have been saved, and our consciences now in the sight of God are good. Do you know why? Because if God says, beloved, that in his sight you are righteous, you are holy, you are just, you are blameless, your sins have been forgiven, and you are no longer estranged from him, but have been brought near, uh, your wounded conscience needs to be told over and over and over again, this is who you are in his sight. And one effect of that is that you no longer, beloved, have the right to elevate your accusations against yourself over the perspective of God who has declared you free from that guilt. That's what sets a conscience free. When I bring my thoughts about myself in conformity to the way God sees me in Christ, When you bring your thoughts about yourself in the conformity with the way God sees you in Christ. That's the beauty of baptism and what it means to say, I belong. Not that I remember doing it, because I didn't do it. God did it. It's also why, and I'll get in a little bit of trouble here, but I'm still in good shape. It's also why, at least personally, I am open to all three of the forms, the modes of baptism that even the Westminster Confession softly countenances 
sprinkling, pouring, and even immersion. It's very interesting the way the Westminster Confessions describes those three, but says, but baptism is rightly done when people are sprinkled or pouring is done. And why? Because if you look at those words, and I don't have time for it now, those words sprinkling, pouring, and immersed, all three of those words are used in the New Testament in reference to the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is poured out upon us. In the book of Hebrews, our hearts are sprinkled clean by the blood of Christ. In Romans 6, we've been immersed, submerged with him in baptism, raised with him through the work of God. So let's come to our final point, because the time clock is not on my side. Improving our baptism. I'll try to make this brief. Baptism implies a manner of life. It's a call to summons. It's a mission statement. It implies a manner of life. When we adopted our first child, I'll never forget the language that the judge used. It really caught my attention when he finalized the adoption, that very last punctuation point. And he said of our daughter, you are now entitled to inherit from these two people just as though you had been biologically born. And then he said to us, while this little baby is sitting there just doing nothing but whatever babies do when they're brand new, and you two are now entitled to her just as if she were biologically born to you. Baptism says that you have been adopted into a family, and you have rights, and you have an inheritance, but be here there are also expectations placed upon you. Children have a right to inherit from their parents, but parents have a right to inherit from their children. What do we mean by that? Uh, expectations that they will live in conformity with the house rules. Expectations that they will grow in love not only for their parents, but even for their siblings. Baptism, in many ways, is almost an analog to adoption for what we are declared to be in a moment. We spend the rest of our lives growing into what do you declare to be in a moment? Family. And what do you spend the rest of your life growing into? The family. The positional, what's been declared, leads to the practical. This is what I work out every day. Baptism literally is an unpacking of what the Heidelberg means when it says, I belong. And because we belong to him, we strive to adorn our lives with what? <clears throat> the fruit of the Spirit that is pleasing to him. Older theologians, pastors, would use this phrase, improving our baptism. You say, well, how, how do I improve my baptism? How do I improve my adoption? How do I improve my status as a son or daughter? It's learning to practice our position. You are what? Righteous, holy, and blameless in his sight. So you are to what? Grow in righteousness holiness, and blamelessness in his sight. It also comes with a warning. Again, older Puritan pastors, when they would go and visit, if you will, confront people who had fallen away from the faith and from the church, do you know a question they would sometimes ask them? What will you say before God when you give an answer for your baptism? When you stand before the one into whose name you were signed and sealed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What account will you give 
for your baptism? I actually think it's a great question. Baptism implies not only privilege, baptism implies responsibility. For the believer, it is a sign and seal from God that we are loved, that we are his, that we are secure. <clears throat> baptism is a wonderful gift. God could have given Israel a light show, but he didn't. God could have given Israel pictures of himself. They had paint and canvas back then, but he didn't. Instead, you know what he gave them? Word and sacrament. Two pictures that he wanted them to see all the time. I actually get excited when we have a baptism here. Even though it's never, you know, not for a long time, my baby. But it's ours. And it's God's. You should be excited too. Not simply about the ministry of the word, baptism, and even the Lord's Supper. Why? Because it's the picture God wants us to see. The picture he paints of the family. And not just see it, but love it. Like a favorite movie you can watch over and over and over and almost never get tired of it. Again, baptism is far more about what God does than about what we do. In fact, on my way out, I might say... Uh, there's nowhere in the Bible where baptism is, a, is referred to as a sign of our profession of faith. The Bible never uses that language. Never is a dangerous word. It never uses that language. It's always referred to as a sign and seal of promises made by God. Signed is the signature. Sealed is the stamp that guarantees authenticity and authority. Baptism is God's promise to his people. They say that in the streets of England, when the plague was going through, famine on the streets was a really big deal. And many orphans found themselves in orphanages, and their great fear was hunger. And they had the hardest time in orphanages getting little children that were afraid of hunger to go to sleep at night until finally uh, one of them somehow figured out this brilliant idea that if they gave a hungry orphan a piece of bread at night, they wouldn't eat it. They would hold it and they would save it for the next day and they would rest. What's the point? God has given you baptism as your piece of bread. Hold it. Cherish it. Carry it through the night, that it might speak to your conscience, that it might assure you of your status. Baptism, beloved, is God's promise to you. Let's pray. Sometimes, O oh Lord, the hardest thing for us to acknowledge is that Father knows best. In a certain sense, that's a cliche among people, but as it relates to you, it's actually quite true. And it is no small observation that you could have given to your people so many different things, and you chose to give to them a ministry of word and sacrament. And we believe that you know best. We also know our own hearts, Lord, and that at times we tend to trivialize things that are actually important in your sight. And it's arguably the case that your church has made uh, too little out of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We ask, Lord, that more and more you'd help us to understand what the sign and seal of our adoption into the family of God means. And that when we say words like, I belong, 
we realize how rich and deep those words actually are. And as it speaks to our conscience, O Lord, who but you, the creator and judge of all the earth, can relieve our conscience from the burden of our sins. And so we thank you not only for the death and the resurrection of our Savior, we thank you for the sign and seal of the covenant of grace that he has granted to us. And we pray, Lord, like those little children, that you would help us to cling to our baptism. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.